podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca on 99.94, the home of cricket audio. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentaries. Our shows include Double Century on the history of the game. West Indies on 99.94 is cricket's best Caribbean coverage. India on 99.94 has considered analysis from two professionals. England on 99.94 has the north and south of the game covered. South Africa on 99.94 is a forensic look at cricket in the Rainbow Nation. And Sri Lanka on 99.94 is our newest member. Find them all where you listen to podcasts or YouTube or just download our app. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about the many South Africans who have played for England. For that, we get our expert on South Africans in the UK. Hi, I'm Daniel Gallen. I'm a freelance cricket writer with The Guardian, The Telegraph and Wizard and a whole bunch of other publications around the world. We chat about Basil Dolivera, Alan Lamb, Robin Smith, KP, Jonathan Trott. You know, we go through a lot of the names and we also explain what the term salt penis actually means. Now, I'm going to talk to you about something that is very close to your heart because you are a South African cricket person who had to come to the UK to make money because there isn't a lot of money in South Africa. And your article in Cricket Monthly for Crick Info is all about the players who have played for England. Now, you don't play for England. You you write for England, you know, writing for The Guardian and The Telegraph, you know, two proper broadsheets there. But I've noticed you've written a lot about Colpac players. You've written a lot in the past about South Africans in England And I wonder how much of it is also because you are literally one of these people, even if it's a different profession. It's just no one really looks down on you because in your line of work, they're just like, oh, good on him. He's going off to make some work. Whereas when it's a cricketer, there's certainly a, oh, I can't believe another one's gone. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Let me just correct you there. I came over to this country because my wife is English and she got a job here. No, Um, no, you came over because you hate, I remember you telling me you hated South Africans (laughs) and South African culture and you wanted to make more money. No, there's, I mean, but, the, but that's a perfect example of there's always more to it, right? No, it's no, It's very sure. rarely cut and no, dry, no, isn't it? No, no, exactly. Uh, that conversation must have happened on our, our, our weekly uh, drink till you blackout uh, that we do every Thursday. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, whatever I say that I thought was confidential, but anyway, so now I'm on the podcast. Uh, no, well, Jared, when I was growing up, the thought, A, that I would, I would live in this country, in England, would, would have shocked me as a, as a young, as a young kid. It is the absolute last place on earth I would have wanted to live. And not because I had any coherence or, or, or inside knowledge on what the country was actually like. It's just because I was raised in the nascent democracy of, of Nelson Mandela's rainbowism. And for me, sport and nationalism were intrinsically linked and supporting my country, South Africa, as passionate as I could was, was contributing to the new South Africa, as, as Mandela's democracy was dubbed. And that meant that I had to hate England. I had to hate the Poms, just as much as I hated the Aussies, perhaps even more so because they were the former co- uh, colonial power. So 
when the coal pack situation happened, I was still living in, when was that, around 2008, I want to say, when the first batch happened there Ish. or thereabouts. I was, I was an adult. I'd, just left, I'd left high school, but even though I should have known better, I still saw Riley Rousseau and Kyle Abbott and Simon Harmer as turncoats and traitors and somehow had abandoned the motherland to go and chase pounds abroad. Then I came over here. For love, but also for money. Let, let's let's pounds. not get it twisted. It's no secret that um, the media landscape in South Africa is, is even more dire than it is here in the UK. And I've, my career has, has, has gone to places I don't think it would have gone to as quickly had I stayed in, in South Africa, certainly as a freelancer. So yes, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm here for money as well. And then I came to realize that, well, that's, that's okay. That's, that's fine. The world is a big place. You, you are allowed to leave the country of your birth to better yourself and to better your income. And through this, you know, breathtaking discovery, the self, uh, moment of self-discovery that I stumbled upon, I, I came to see these cricketers as human beings, but also as, as interesting case studies. Yeah, I know, right? As also interesting, interesting subjects. So I sat down with, with all of them. And I've, as you said, I've written, I've written several pieces. I mean, I basically, I don't think there was a publication in the UK that I didn't write a cold pack story for. I even wrote one in the Night Watchman titled, They Call Me the Cold Pack Journalist, because that is what people have called me both as a joke, but also as, as a bit of a, as a bit of a jibe. I think people have, people, some people too take issue with the fact that I, as just, you've experienced yourself, how, how dare you have the temerity of leaving your country and writing about a sport that isn't Australia or isn't South Africa, wherever you're from. And this, this latest piece on the South Africans who, who ended up playing for England just felt like a, a natural progression in, in a, in a series that I've, I've sort of been committed to for the last have been three years since I've been living here. Yeah. I th and I think, you know, you talked about growing up also, as you become a professional journalist, you do understand a lot more. You get to know cricketers quite well and athletes quite well. And you do realize that for them, they have the chance to make life altering money, or as they call it in America, sometimes even generational changing money. You know, we probably don't quite have that in cricket, but you know, someone like someone like Tyrone Henderson, um, who you know played for eight minutes in the IPL, uh, basically changed his life, right? Because because of those eight minutes, and you know, someone like Rabada, as good as he would ever be for South Africa, what is his earning potential now because of uh, you know cricket uh, outside of of South Africa? And, and there are so many players uh, like him, not just from South Africa, of course. And then you, you, so when you're young, you just like, well, you play for the badge. And then you realize that, you know, I, I remember meeting someone from Cricket Australia once and it was when we were making our documentary. And he said, the only reason you got Ed Cowan in your documentary was because it was early on. He said, they, they play about the first 10 matches for the badge. And then after that, they start to realize that this is their career and they've got to make as much money as they can. And it, you know, it becomes serious to them. And you get a lot of and now I think with T20 leagues, that's almost happening earlier, right? Players are working mm. out really early on. Wait a minute, this is a cool job, but it's a job and I'm only going to be able to do it for 15 years. So we all think about these things a lot differently. Um, and, and, you know, Grant Elliott probably won't come up too much in this one because this is obviously about English players. But I remember thinking that Grant Elliott was the biggest turncoat of all time. But then also think, well, wait a minute, regardless of whether he wanted to make money or not, he wanted to play the ultimate level of cricket. Chances are in South Africa, he was never going to get anywhere near that team. He ends up being a World Cup hero and, you know, uh, you know, a test player and all these sorts of different things. 
for them, and, and I think for a lot of the players on this list, for many different reasons, the only way to be the ultimate cricketers they could have been is to leave um, and, and play somewhere else because a lot of them weren't thought of as champions when they were young. They, they were struggling cricketers and they, they ended up building their reputation. Sometimes because of apartheid, they just couldn't play for South Africa. Someone like Kevin Peterson, who I suppose in many ways, and we'll come to him more later, was maybe a late bloomer in the way that his skills uh, and didn't fit into the South African cricket culture. All these sorts of different things happen. But let's start with Jonathan Trott who is out on the field one day batting with, I think it was Kevin Peterson, when umpire Steve Davis said to him, Ah, I've got the quote here. He says, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, Davis said out of the side of his mouth between deliveries, but I'm the only Englishman on the field right now. Trot said, I thought, oh, I thought bloody hell he's right. Essentially, I'll I'll paraphrase the rest. It was something that Jonathan, and I'll call him Jonathan rather than Trot, Jono, had thought about before, because of course he had. But... He's quite a single-minded guy. I don't know if you've ever spoken to Jonathan Trott. He's first I of all he, quite well. <laughs> he, he, he right. He 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 was reluctant to talk to me for this piece. He wanted to read my piece on Colpax for Cricket Monthly just to make sure that I wouldn't that I didn't have an agenda because naturally he's quite quite guarded around this subject because he'd been called all the names under the sun, like all these cricketers had been called. Yeah, it was a remarkable thing. I was actually I was actually there in that match. It was the talk around while that pot, that match seven partnership was going on. We kept thinking. We didn't, I didn't know, we didn't, we, at the time in the stands, you don't really pay attention to the umpires or you just know that there isn't a single Englishman playing cricket right now in a match that involves England. And I'll tell you what, as a fan, that gets your, that gets your blood up, that gets your blood boiling. Cause you think, well, what is the point of international cricket then? Why, why are these, are, are, are these guys going through the, the farce of wearing a country's flag on their chest if they're not even from that country. This is obviously before I, I come to understand the connectivity of the world, et cetera. And, and certainly if I was critical of it now, I'd be a hypocrite. It's a weird one, right? It's, 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 it's an interesting thing that someone can, can speak like a South African, can be groomed as South Africa, can play in, in the under-19 World Cup for South Africa, which, which, which Truck did. He, he played through all the age group system. Um, he had a a contract at Western province, but by the accidents of his birth, he's got a, a British passport so he can go over to Warwickshire and play for them without, uh, by, by circumnavigating the, uh, overseas limits, play, uh, limits of overseas players. He gets a double time on debut for, for the second 11 and then away he goes. A few years later, he's playing for England. So it's, it's luck, it's circumstance, it's, it's, um, it's timing. And it's just a, it's just a weird quirk that, that allows it to happen. And, and of course it's currency because you don't see an English born players playing for South Africa because why would they when, when it's 20 rands to the pound? Mm. Yeah. The money thing is really interesting. A little bit of grass on the wicket is good, but too much and all hell breaks loose. Not enough and things can go sideways very quick. The same is true of your pubic hair. And you don't have a groundsman who smells like fertilizer telling you what to do. No, you are the curator of your own pubic pitch. So if you're having trouble grooming your pitch, what about Manscaped? They've invented a sleek, well-designed, optimized trimmer that helps you shave your ball. I've used it and it's incredible. It's good enough to use at Lords. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA, which should be easy to remember because that's the name of this podcast. And you just put that in at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, free worldwide shipping, manscaped.com, the code is Red Inca. I always thought this podcast took balls more seriously than anyone else. Then I tried Manscaped. So last 56 years, 
19 South African-born cricketers have donned the three lions. That doesn't include the Zimbabweans, of course, uh, that, that have gone through. So, you know, if you look at Southern Africa as, as a whole, you know, there's even more there, uh, you know, wait, waiting for the influx of um, Namibian players, left-arm seamers in the 100 one day as well. Mm. So, and it's, so it's not a new thing. I think it felt, what, 2009 is almost the, the peak because you had Strauss, Pryor, KP, Trot all playing in that one series. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anyone there. You probably had Stuart Meeker and Jay Dern back around their limited overs team. Yeah, that that's time. right, on the one-day side, yeah. Craig Kiesvetter as well. So that kind of feels like the, 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 the peak, but you go back to the 80s and 90s and you have Alan Lamb and, and everyone. Um, and there's, you know, something else that you talked about was the different level of, of when people come over as well. So Andrew Strauss left when he was six. Matt Pryor, I think, was about 11 or 12 off the top of my head. 11, that's right, yeah. And Matt Pryor still some, sometimes says words that I hear him talking and I go, oh, and, and I suddenly remember he's South African. And, you know, and, and you know, uh, Stuart Meeker and, and Jay Dernbach, they, they were a little bit older again. So there's a, this is a huge thing that has been going on for a long time. But before we get too much into it, can you just tell me what a salt penis is? <laughs> yeah, a salt peel. Uh, it's, it's what, I mean, Afrikaans is such a descriptive language. For example, uh, the position short leg is, is directly translates to the slaughterhouse position, the slachais position. And, and I, I, I just love that. Um, so yeah, I mean, essentially a sole penis is a, a pejorative that I, I think may have even started in like just after the Boer War. I, I spent far too many hours. And when I say hours, I mean almost the entire day trying to find the, uh, the roots of this, of this phrase. And I, and I wasn't able to come up with anything that I, I felt confident enough putting in the piece, but I know what it means. Essentially what it means is that you have a connection with England in particular, but, but Europe in general. Where you have one foot in, in the UK, one foot in Africa, and your bits dangle down into the salty sea, hence a salt pill, a salt penis, which is just a, a lovely image. And so that's the sort of thing that would be said of these players. Uh, did Jonathan Trot ever tell you he was called a salt penis? No, I did ask them all. I mean, they, 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 they sort of said that, well, we know what it means, and, but no one ever, no, none of them had a quote that, that I felt could, I could, I could link them to to the soap pill. Although Trot had a good line where he said he would often he was often called a piece of biltong. That seemed to be a line that, that stuck out for him. Because all these guys got a lot of stick when they when they out into the field. Peterson as well, who uh anyone who reads the piece will will note his absence. He strongly declined an interview with me, uh both in person at, at the, in the Lord's Press box, um, as well as uh through his agent. So I, I wasn't getting I wasn't getting KP's words on this. But I know that he was Sledged, and and all the all the the Colpacks and the South Africans who landed up playing for England were sledged. Robert Smith, um, a big part. Alan Lamb was 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 sledged once, and he just turned around and said, "Mate, I wouldn't be here if you were any good, or if you weren't so shit." So I think the South Africans who come over here, who came over here, knew what they were signing up for. And look, let's be honest: if there was an English, a young English guy, twenty one, twenty two. Who went over to South Africa or England, not as a club player, but as someone who had stated his intention of, of then going on and playing for that country, of course they get a lot of sticks. So the reverse salt penis. You, right. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't even want to try and come up with a name for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know about this. When I was reading your article, mm. did you know that 
I'm trying to get the players right. Field of Freitas and Devin Malcolm sued the Cricketer magazine in the 90s for a racist piece that was written about them. Are you aware mm. of this? No, I didn't know that. I think it was the Cricketer. I, 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 the Wisdom Cricketer, the Cricketer. There were so many different versions of that in that period. But it was the, the magazine that David Firth edited. And that whole article was written by a horrendously racist person. And in his article, he basically says that Robin Smith and Alan Lamb are completely accepted because they understand our values as fellow white people. He never quite puts it that way, but it's so, mm. so close. To that. And then says, but the West Indians, they don't understand us at all and, and goes into, you know, it's obviously coded language all the way through. So it was really interesting at a time when black cricketers were suing major publications about the way they wrote about them as English players that Alan Lamb felt very similar, right? Mm. And it's obviously the kind of backlash that he got was always going to be different than the black players and probably the Asian players got. But they were still outsiders, even if they fit the sort of county cricket model a lot better than perhaps uh, than, than the West Indian and the Indians have. And in fact, if you, I suppose the proof is there that West Indians don't don't play as much in county cricket anymore. That there aren't as many West Indian uh, people with, of, of West Indian lineage that play in county cricket. Obviously, there's huge problems within the Asian community. That's never really been a problem within the South, the South Africans keep coming over and keep getting picked. So on one hand, they're accepted in the system because they, they play the way that county cricket accepts them, but they're still seen as outsiders, which is almost, it's better, but it's almost more confusing. Yeah, confusing was a, was a theme throughout all my interviews that all, all these guys who... <laughs> You know, Robert Smith and Anna Lamb, who were incredibly generous and, and honest, uh, generous with their time and honest with their thoughts when, when I spoke to them. I mean, they were gold mines in terms of, in terms of resource for, for this piece. They both spoke, all of them, Trot, Michael Lum as well, all spoke of, of, of a strong desire to play for England. They all, and, and I don't think this is painting a bullseye around in a red shot arrow. I think they arrived in the country with a strong desire to play for to play for England, I don't think they would have been as successful and endured the sledging and and the lean patches with the bat and the homesickness and all of them grew up in, in the great weathers, you know, in South Africa with great weather. I don't think they would have endured the the, the cold winters. Although Lamb and Swift came back to play in South Africa, they wouldn't they wouldn't have got through those tough periods if they didn't really want to play for England. So then to be seen as an outsider slightly separate from from the tribe of which they were so desperate to be a part in. It, 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 it was confusing for them. And I think we need to give them a lot of credit. I think I think it's almost easy for for people to say, well, they benefited by 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 being outsiders. They because they had a point of difference, because they all grew up on the bouncy wickets and were able to play pace, which I touched on in the piece, which is obviously a a help when you make the step up to test cricket because you know, you got skillful bowlers in the county championship, but it's it's really pace that is that is the big difference, the big the big difference between test and, and domestic cricket. So, you know, certainly someone like Robin Smith was almost was was ready made to play test cricket. He was maybe a better test cricketer than he was a county cricketer, some might argue. So people can say, well, that well, they benefited from from their outsider status, but they really had to fight against that. And the fact that they were able to succeed while doing so, I think is commendable. And uh, there's a really interesting story about Craig Kieswetter. Craig Kieswetter didn't speak to you for the piece, did he? No, no. I, I, Craig Kieswetter is um, raising horses in, in KZN and, and has 
uh, certainly not. He's, I don't know if I don't want to say he's shunned the the cricket world, but he wasn't talking to me about it. So I, I spoke to Michael Lamb instead. He's his opening partner in the 2012 T20 World Cup, I think it was, or was that the 2010 World Cup? I can't remember now. 10, I think. Yeah, when England won, there was about yeah. there was one about every eight months at that point. But uh, right. he said something to Trotty about his accent, which I found really interesting. Yeah, that was. A, I mean, that was an incredible anecdote that that Trot said, and it was one of those you'll know from interviewing people sometimes the best lines just come from well is there anything else to add and he was like yeah actually I, this whole conversation has got me thinking about this time that we're standing at the oval Kisveta was was keeping um trot was a first slip it was a one-day match he said he couldn't remember who it was who they were playing against or or even what the score was or who won it or even what the year was so i i I, I, I tried my best. I mean, there was just there were just too many games where Trot would have been standing at first slip, but Kisveta was standing in the uh, uh, was standing at keeper at the oval. There was like a short list of five, so I just I didn't want to include it in the piece. And out of nowhere, literally between balls, Kisveta said to Trot, "You know, I, I really struggle with with my accent. I wish I sounded more more English. I wish I I was read as more English. I wish I was able to fit in more." And Confiding in players is more acceptable now. It was more acceptable then than perhaps it was during Robert Smith and 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 and, and Lamb's time. But elite athletes are still quite notorious for not being vulnerable. Mm. So kudos to him for for expressing this vulnerability. But the fact that he did it in a game between overs while having to field or potentially take a catch off an edge, I thought it was remarkable and and. And, well, yeah, keep it for could... England as well, I think is the interest. Do you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. The whole thing is bizarre. While wearing the three lions on, mm. on his chest and while wearing the England flag on his shirt, confiding to another South African born player about how he wishes he was less South African and more English. I mean, mate, you, you, you're, you're playing for England. Like your, your, your bona fides can't, can't be questioned here. And I think, I think that really spoke to something that I think Peterson felt, Trot expressed that he felt it, and all the other players felt that. No matter how many runs they scored or or how many series they won or, or tournaments they, they they won for England, they were never fully going to be accepted. Mm. And and I I in a way feel that. Look, I'm rep- when I write for the Guardian, I'm not representing I'm not even representing the Guardian really. I'm I'm representing myself. So the 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 link with, with myself and these guys is very tenuous. No one's questioning my my allegiance to the country of my birth. But I, I understand what it's like to be an outsider, as it were, and want to fit in more than you're going to. I'm very comfortable not fitting in. I, I, I don't. Well, I, I don't. I don't have to be seen as as one of the team. I'm a freelance journalist. There's no team, but I, I can, I can totally see how playing for a country and all these guys learned the anthem. They, they, you know, as adults, well, not all of them. Mm. Strauss came here when he was when he was six, but Jonathan Truck said that he he had to learn the anthem, um, which was a. Luckily, it's not very difficult. It's not the South African one, but he learned the anthem. He he had a home in Birmingham. He was scoring runs for England. This was a lifelong dream. He said he always wanted to play for them, and yet he never felt completely loved and completely inside the inner circle. That must be challenging. I don't think we get we we put enough thought to how difficult that must have been for them. Yeah, I mean, I always think back to when the whole KP thing was going on, and Jimmy Anderson was caught. I think it was Jimmy Anderson. Uh, apologies if it wasn't, but screaming at a TV about that Safa loud enough that a bunch of people, you know, I think it was reported at the time. I think David Hopps might have reported it or someone else did. 
And it's just being like, it doesn't matter what you do. That's what you are, right? You're always that person, that, that sort of outsider. Mm. The batting and bowling thing is really interesting. I'll just, very briefly, you talk about the way that uh, slow county wickets really help prepare South Africans maybe even more because um, that combination, they come from faster wickets. So now they have, they have the ability to play on, on fast wickets and slow wickets, which means when they get to test cricket outside of Asia, they're very well-rounded players. And I think we've seen that before. That's fine. Why then still, though, are the bowlers who also get the ability to learn new skills and, and everything else not doing that? Is that because uh, they don't play much in South Africa and they get to England and they get churned through in county cricket? And Duane Olivier and Simon Harmer, are they the two most obvious ones who maybe could have gone on to play for uh, England? Well, I, I don't know if... On, t- on skill. I, on skill, I mean, not, on, not, not that they were trying to. Well, I mean, I think Simon Harmer would walk into this England side now um, mm. Some might believe that he should be playing in the South African team. I probably still have Maharaj ahead of him. But Dwan Onafir is an interesting case because when he went cold pack, he was the most, he was the scariest bowler in the world. He was striking at around 15. He had, a, he had a, or rather, had an average of 15. He was getting a wicked, what, every like 30 balls. He was bouncing people out for fun at the Wanderers and, and Centurion and even Cape Town. Then he goes cold pack and he goes up to Yorkshire and he realizes that that nasty length doesn't quite work in English conditions. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't immediately translate. So, he, I mean, he really struggled in his first season. I don't know if he's ever averaged in the, in, in the, in the low 20s. Uh, maybe he has, but um, it, playing, playing county cricket, that is. But, yeah, I, th- I think, I think Dwan Onofi is a, a perfect example of why batters have had more success going from South Africa uh, to England. I mean, now uh, Bryden Cass, who moved over 24, he, he's a bowler who's, who's had a bit of success. Tom Curran came when he was 17, so I don't think he, he can count. Uh, Stuart Mika moved over when he was 12. Jay Dernbach moved over when he was 14. So I guess Cass is, is sort of the only bowler mm-hmm. who, who moved over as they, did, as they did better cricketer. And yeah, I mean, Olafia probably wouldn't make the England side. Certainly not now, but, but even after their first season of county cricket. Whereas Simon Harmer, a slow bowler, and, and all the batters that have come through, yeah, I think I think that does help. So conditions definitely play a factor in, in when looking at the list and, and, and why so many of them are batters. And I can't remember if you did this in your piece or not, or if I just did it in my head when I was taking notes, but basically we're talking about two completely different eras. We're talking about post-apartheid, um, <laughs> which is the era we're talking about there, and we're talking pre-apartheid, where if you wanted to make a, a profession as a cricketer, you had to leave south africa because there was so little money in south africa you know uh in general usually it was the cream of the crop players uh there was a handful of them and obviously some of them decided to try and play for england and perhaps some of them didn't i don't i don't know how that happens like why does tony Gregg play for england and mike proctor doesn't uh when mike proctor is a better player and tony Gregg's a fantastic cricketer don't get me wrong um i know for years his commentary actually probably ruined his reputation as a cricketer but he was a fantastic yeah. cricketer but mike proctor mm. was a next level so there were certainly players who went towards playing for england and the players who didn't go towards playing for england yeah well I, I, it's a shame that this was that this didn't make the piece um I, it just felt like it took it away from the what, what i was trying to get across um, with the, with like the thrust of the piece, especially towards the end, where where I did want to include Proctor, but and and the Dolivera affair, uh, Baz Dolivera being the first South mm. African-born player to play for England, Mike Proctor could have played for England, w- gained permanent residence, and he he done the residency 
But then he went to the captain South Africa against the rebels. And the, what were the East, whatever the ECB were called back then. TCCB. Basically revoked, um, rescinded the offer of, of him playing for England as the way he saw it as punishment for, for, for taking part in, in the rebel tour, uh, for captaining South African rebels. See, they, even though that wasn't considered an official international, they felt like he had uh, sworn allegiance to his, to the country of his birth and basically told him in no uncertain terms that they, that they weren't going to pick him. Even then, though, that was quite late, wasn't it? That's what I mean. There are, there certainly, there seem to be players who played the game better, like Greg and Alan Lamb. Probably they're the, the two most obvious ones. And there are other players who decided that they were just going to play as professionals. Well, their passports would have helped. Uh, Proctor didn't have a didn't have a British passport, whereas oh, okay. the Gregs, the Smiths, and Lamb, they all had British passports, so they could come oh. over here and and effectively just serve a couple of years in the county scene, prove their worth, and then, and then, and then get stuck in. Ah, so that, that, so that makes sense. And that goes back to Jonathan Trott as well, right? There yeah, are players yeah. who have passports and there are other players who have to wait their turn. Dolivere didn't have a passport and there was one other who's, whose name is, who, I'm looking at the list now, I can't quite remember who. Graham Hick didn't have a passport? <laughs> yeah, yeah, though he's, he was uh, Zimbabwean. Was yeah. yeah. Yeah, Zimbabwean. And those are both special cases, Basil Dolivere and Graham Hick, right? Mm. Yeah, Basil Dolivere. I mean, I'd love to talk about, about Basil Dolivere. When I first started writing this piece, I, I got in touch with, uh, with the editor, with my editor, Raul, and said, uh, uh, Raul, listen, I hope you'll, you're happy to accept 10,000 words because I'm, I'm only halfway through and I've spent 4,000 words writing about the Basil Dolivere thing. He was like, Dan, that needs a complete overhaul. We don't want another Dolivere story. I would, one day I will write my take on, on, on the affair. Would anyone go watch that Hollywood movie? I mean, I would. What, what a fantastic oh. story. Look, we, we did the Double Century podcast on it, I think. So there were probably three oh. and a half full episodes on it. And oh, excellent. Okay. It, it's, there's no doubt that it, it definitely is a Hollywood movie. I suppose the problem is, is where does it fit in to, you know, who funds it? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, South Africans, maybe not as much. And, England, and it's hard to get all that sort of thing. But you're right. It, Basil Dolivier on his own. Even uh, there, was, uh, there was a bit of your piece that I absolutely loved, which has nothing to do with you, but it has all the dates where everyone move at uh, the ages where everyone moves over, right? Oh, that was me. Yeah, and you had the little uh, asterisk next to him mm. for thirty-three years old when he was probably thirty-seven, maybe thirty-eight. <laughs> I mean, some reports have him at twenty-nine. So you're right. He, I mean, whatever age he was, he was sensational. I mean, he absolutely tore it up. Um, there's a great anecdote uh, where he he sits he's sitting and watching South Africa get demolished by the English at Newlands in a ground where he was confined to the quote unquote coloured seating. He must have just thought, man, who are these jokers? Like I used to be playing for South Africa, and then and then of course he came over and he came over to the UK and uh, struggled, tore the house down. Eventually got dropped, came back, scored the 150 at the Oval, had to get picked, and and. Um, like Peter Hayne, the great anti-apartheid activist who, and former Labour politician, says that he was an unwitting, Donavera was an unwitting um, catalyst for change. Donavera never wanted to, never saw himself as an as, as a revolutionary agent. And yet, I, I can't think of, of a single cricketer who has directly or indirectly led to a regime change. I mean, maybe, maybe, there, maybe there are others, but well, Imran Khan, but yes. Well, Imran Khan, <laughs> Imran Khan who, who literally spearheaded a regime change. But 
But you're right. I mean, you know, and what's what more interesting is he's the first one in this in, in that that goes to South Africa, and then everyone else is basically majority white. I don't, I can't. Is there any other non-white? No, so he's the only one, which makes the whole thing even more fascinating, right? That after mm, mm. he almost paved the way, but it was for a particular, it was for the the great white players who couldn't play in South Africa, right? Or yeah. sorry, couldn't play for South Africa. Then it becomes for the what would you call them? The fringe players who who you know who see it as a professional move. You know, Kevin Peterson talks about quite early on in his career, maybe 2005, 2006, talked about the mm. fact that he left in part because of the quota. So you go from mm. Basil D'Oliveira to KP saying, well, I've left because it's hard to actually get picked if you're uh, a white player in South Africa, which doesn't seem to be the case, Dan, but that's for another day. But that's how far it changes politically. It's weird to see them on the same list. Um, <laughs> Kevin, Peters <laughs> Kevin really Peterson is. and... and <laughs> and, and Basil Oliveira, um, I, I I would love to know what Basil would think about that. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think I think it is worth saying now. Kevin Peterson was not getting his opportunities in South Africa because he wasn't good enough. The opportunities, as as he would have seen, not because of the color of his skin. He, as is well documented, he was a a tall, loofy off spinner who could give it a whack at number seven. But then he came over here, and there were no fast bowlers who were who would keep him on the back foot and and bang it back to the length. And, and and test his technique around that that fourth that sort of fifth stump line around his chest. He could use his height and get that big stride forward against seamers who look to swing it and bowl it, and, and he just gave it a whack. And then you know he started scoring more runs, and he gained a bit more confidence, and then developed that front foot pull, and then eventually a back foot pull and a back foot cut. People say, oh well, wouldn't it have been amazing if if Kevin Pearson could have bat could have batted in the same middle order as Jacques Cullis, Hashim Mamla, and Abed Avila as well? I'm certain and. Bowl means at me, but I'm I'm pretty confident that if Kevin Peterson stayed in South Africa, he would never have got that opportunity because Kevin Peterson just kept getting bowed. He kept nicking off into the gully or third slip by guys who would just go full, full, bang it in short. Even if he develops, I don't think he gets the opportunity. It's the Neil Wagner argument, right? Where it's just like that. We're talking on that on that previous podcast, which we recorded at the same time, so it's confusing for us, but not for you if you're listening. We're talking about you know that period where South Africa was struggling to find bowlers, where you know uh, Peters, uh, sorry, not Peters, Patterson and and Hendricks were bowling for them, right? And you look at Wagner, and you're just like, oh, if they had the Wagner now, how much better mm. that would be. Neil Wagner wasn't making it through South Africa's system. Right? right? Maybe he gets a couple of tests. He certainly wouldn't have become the Neil Wagner he did. And it's the same with KP. So at a certain point, that ability to go into other areas actually has helped develop a lot of South African cricketers. I, I would say that Colin Ingram, I know he hasn't played for England, but is another example of a player who's very well-rounded because he's had to play in two different um, areas consistently. Riley Rousseau, another one. There's a lot of these guys out there. You look at them and go, and, and I don't want to downplay, I think they're both fantastically talented players, but sometimes I wonder if they'd played in one first-class league, whether we'd think of Colin Ingram and, and Riley Rousseau as that level of player, right? But they've had the ability, like the Australian and West Indians used to, of playing one summer here and one summer there, and you learn so many things from from that mm. sort of uh, that, that sort of uh, pressure system. So I, mm. I do think that, that is, um, it has helped a lot of those South African players who wouldn't have got the opportunities if they'd been back at home. Now... I had a look at this list and this is, this is, there's 19 players, right? And I actually know a lot of these players, like personally. So I know mm. KP, I know Pryor, I know Trot, Dernbach, Compton and Mika, right? 
I wouldn't say I know everyone on the list, but I've certainly had conversations with Robin Smith before and with Alan Lamb. Balza Dolivera, as I said before, I've written a big podcast series on him. I feel like I know him in the way that as writers, we know people, not not mm. specifically. The one thing I noticed when, you know, I'm going through that list of 19 and I, I started to think, I don't know if you know, so Jay Dernbach is obviously, he was a different kind of player when he played, right? You know, the tattoos, the back of the hand slow balls, everything about him. Mm. Uh, mm. Nick Compton is trying to get into photography at the moment. Stuart mm. Meeker is living hashtag van life, although last time I talked to him, his van was uh, up on blocks, so I'm not sure how the van life is going at the moment. Jonathan Trott, I mean, I've, I have many stories. George Jabell has many stories. He's a remarkable person, but completely different. Spent a lot of time with Matt Pryor, again, slightly different. I don't think I need to convince anyone that KP is slightly different in this situation. Mm. I do feel that there is some kind of, the salt penis thing, right? There's a sort of out outlier personality in all these sorts of people that I'm not sure that they would have completely fit in to South African cricket if they'd stayed at home. And also perhaps within English cricket, um, if they'd been born in England, it would have been bred out of them. There's some kind of individual uh, individualness to these sorts of players that they are all very, what, what would you say? Uh, what, what's the Australian phrase? Um, yeah. You know, they're all um, non-traditional sort of uh, p people within in cricket. And it's almost like they found their, their individuality by being not, you know, I, I, I think about this for myself as a writer. If I'd stayed in Australia, I don't think I would have been as good a writer. And it's not because Australia doesn't push good writing. It's that I would have followed what Australians did and I would have become that. By coming to England and not being respected instantly by the English media and going out on my own, I developed my own idiosyncratic style that doesn't really make sense unless you're Jared Kimber, right? I look at the people I know on this list and the people I kind of know on this list, it does feel to me that there's a lot of very weird personalities and outlier habits of almost everyone there. And I don't know if that's just dumb luck. It's just 19 people and it's ended up like that way. Or if there's something about the sort of salty penis nature of all this. Sorry for keeping the salt penis going. No, no, I think it's a fantastic phrase and I think more people should use it in, in, in the everyday conversations. I spent uh, about 13 months backpacking through Southeast Asia between university and, and, and my working life. And I eventually washed up on a, on a beach bar in Cambodia where, I, where I'd spend four or five months. And I, you'd see people come and go. And the people who stayed for like four days or a week were sort of the same sort of folks and you get to know them. But the people who, who'd been there for a year or two years or five years, people who had maybe started dating or even marrying a, a local Khmer person who had started their own business. Those were, to a person, were weird people. Like, and I don't mean weird as in like off-putting. I just mean like odd. There was something strange about them. They were wacky. They were zany. Even if they were quiet, there was something a bit like, they, they, they didn't fit the mold. I think, I think if you leave your, the, the, the safety of your country and you go overseas in any sort of profession, and you commit yourself to succeeding and thriving despite your outsider status, and then you do go on and thrive and survive and succeed, I think that does, that does require a, a strong sense of individualism. I think you have to know yourself. I think you have to be comfortable with being different. And when you're comfortable with being different, 
you're less likely to try and 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 adapt to what is considered normal in that situation. So I don't think it's necessarily that these guys are weird or that all the, all the people who who came over are weird. I just think mm. that they all these people by virtue of coming to a new place and 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 deciding that I'm going to succeed in a foreign environment, they were able to retain the individuality and like you know the course of a river is long, right? So, you know from 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 me to this cricket ball that I'm holding might not be very far, but from me to where you are, Jared, in South London, that's a long river, right? And by the, by the time we get from me to you at the end of the river, a lot has changed. So, you know, Peterson comes over and he's this brash kid. By the time he's scoring runs and captaining England, he's a he's a odd, he's an odd cat. You know, same mm. with same with um Jennings, same with Roy, same with same with Trot. Yeah, I haven't I don't even know them, but I think they would fit in that in that as well. Yeah, so I think I think I think these guys partly why they succeed is because they are able to retain that individuality, and that individuality is obviously plugged into their cricketing abilities. You know, how often do we see a guy who's got a lot of talent move in any sport, move to a different environment, move away from his home, away from his family, away from his mates, and struggle because he's unable to to keep that sense of self, and when that sense of self is plugged into your your athletic ability. What well, is either going to rise and fall as that sense of self waxes or wanes? There's one other thing that I think we need to mention, because we mentioned at the start the financial point of this. I think that people still, even though we know more about finances in cricket, don't understand that if you're the, I'm going to go the eighth best cricketer in South Africa, let's say the eighth best through to the 15th best player in South Africa, you are going to make, and, and you have a 15-year career doing that, you are going to make a fraction of what you would if you played as a top-level county player, even at a smaller county, aren't you? It's not even comparable. If you're a if you're in that top seven or eight, or you know maybe top, certainly top three or four, you get the local endorsements and you get the extra money and you get the dinner speaking and you you maybe you do a little bit when you retire you become Sean Pollock and you do TV and all that sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. If you're outside of that top seven or eight, there really is no money in South African cricket. You, you can live an okay life in South Africa, but you know that if you do uh, cross over to England, the county money is just on a completely different level. And you also know you can probably do it for longer than 15 years. Maybe you can earn for you know 20 or 22 years if, if you're lucky. You can have ridiculously long careers in that. So it, there is always that finance, financial push. And I think a lot of us find that, you know, you, you know, both of us have left to come to the UK. The pound is quite strong compared to our currencies. And, you know, there are people who are doing that sort of stuff. There is an economic um, migration here as well as you want to play the top level of cricket and maybe you're not getting the chances that you deserve back home and all those other things. It really is an economic pull. 100%. That's why... I wrote this piece about South Africans who played for England and not for Bangladesh or for the West Indies. And, and that's also why it, it pisses off so many South Africans, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, if, they were go- if, they were, if they were going to a place and, and, and sacrificing wealth, well, people came behind that, right? Oh, well, good luck to him. Isn't he, isn't he, isn't he a bard? Isn't he like, following his passion? But as soon as you use you, you South African cricket as a stepping stone, as many people view it, including coaches who I've spoken to, including directors of cricket that I've spoken to, um, who, who regard the people who went cold pack and not so much these guys, because a lot of them went younger, but certainly the cold packs who, who use it as a stepping stone, that's going to get your go. Of course, of course it's going to. It, it got mine. 
when I was a fan, still am a fan, but you know, when I, when I wasn't, a, when I wasn't also the impartial journalist that I am right now as well, when I was purely a fan, I thought to hell with that. These guys are, are, are what using my country to, to better themselves. How absolute dare they, you know, they, 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 they can't, they can't go around doing that. Only, only I could do that. You know, and if I, and if I can't, if I can't get out of here, why should they be able to get out of here and earn more money and then come back and play whenever they want? So yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's why you just inherently assume that every billionaire must be an arsehole because greater wealth comes a lot of cynicism and, 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 and snark and, and jealousy. And, and yeah, that's just how it's going to go. We're not going to defend Elon Musk on this podcast, no matter how much you want to. Uh, let's just finish <laughs> up with uh, Jonathan Trot. He's the main part of your piece. We haven't talked about him too much. And you know, yeah. maybe one day I'll convince him to come on a podcast and he'll mumble at me. But well, he may not now because his wife will probably listen to this and hear that I made a joke about him mumbling. But I love talking to Trotty about cricket and I do know him yeah. a, a little bit, you know, professionally and, and, and you know, o- over the time. I feel that with him, we talked about how these people are all individuals, but I, f- I feel with him, it really was about getting the most out of himself as much as it was about making money. And I think that he's such an uber professional that what he wanted to do is keep testing himself at the top level mm-hmm. over and over and over again. If he could provide for his family and make a new family as he did, um, that's also great. But I think that the name on the badge, you know, this is from reading your piece. And I've never talked to him about this stuff, but from your piece, the name on the badge mattered to him. And it, he probably still, if you offered him, you know, a light, you know, a switch, he would have picked South Africa over England, you know, if, if, if the, especially if the finances worked for him. But I, th- I think with someone like Trotty, and we do discount that because we do go to everything you just said is so accurate, you know, the way that we think about money. But there is a part, about it where for him, the next delivery mattered the most. And I think that's what we knew from him. And I think that really comes through from him. The only way that Jonathan Trott is a thing in cricket and is well-respected and, you know, has gone on to be a coach and, you know, will probably be a coach for as long as he wants to coach in cricket. It's because he played at the top level of, 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 of world cricket and played brilliantly at that level, you know, for a long time. And for him, it's almost like that's what he wanted to achieve and he did it. There's going to be a lot of people in a lot of different countries around the world who are going to have to do that through the England system because the their local system is is stacked against them for whatever reason, right? And you can see why for someone like Jonathan Trot and we talked I talked about Grant Elliott before, you could put maybe some even someone like Joffrey Archer into that, like the, you know financially, education, family, whatever it is, it's like. England might be what you started off at the episode talking about that colonial master that you and I were, we were brought up. I was brought up to despise everything English, right? Mm. But there mm. is also that thing of uh, it does have the ability that all these different cultures come over here. There is an opportunity for a lot of us to get work here that we wouldn't get at home. And for someone like Jonathan Trott, there was the ability to become the best cricketer he could be. He could only really do that in England. Mm. Mm. I think what you said about how the next ball always matters to him. I think I think I've had so many players tell me this in in, in my time speaking with them, and I'm always like, yeah, whatever, mate. That that's that's something that you've heard someone say once. And but I won't say Trot's the only one, but I but he is one of the few players who I genuinely believe in when he yep. says that. I think that I think that I could be bowling that I could have got my ball out and, and bowled my terrible doublers to him. And I think he would have treated it with a with a degree of respect because it was a cricket ball coming at him while he was holding a bat. He, I mean, he scores that double time on debut and he walks up and smashes his bat in, uh, in the Warriors' dressing room. 
But mate, I, at double time, I've never got anywhere near that at any level, you know, and, and he, I just think he was such an insatiable run getter. And I think that's why when he was out of form and he was getting bounced by Johnson, I think that's why it took it so hard. I think that, I think that's why he saw failure on the field as, as somehow a sign of, of, of his moral and, and, and cognitive degradation and, you know, like decay and somehow this, this, because he wasn't able to pull a Mitchell Johnson 155 kilometer bouncer, somehow he was a bad person. I think, I think he's sort of a guy who, who conflates those two things. He told me the one thing I didn't quite believe in, and, and I, I might contradict myself from something earlier I said in the, in the, in this podcast, but he, you know, when he said, Oh, I always wanted to play for England. He, he, he watched, um, the England rugby side of the 95, 1995 rugby world cup. He said he supported England. This is the guy who went to three international tournaments with a South African badge on, on, on his chest. The last being the, the under 19 world cup when. Samit Solakile was the captain and his teammate was Graham Smith. So they had a pretty good side. I think that was to Bangladesh. Um, I can't quite recall. So if I had to say, well, I always grew up wanting to play for England. Um, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I'm not going to, you know, maybe we have to take him at his word. I, I'm not going to put him on a, on a lie detector. But he, he's definitely a guy who knew he was good enough to play, test cricket, to play cricket at the highest level. I, I, I just think it, it was a... You know what? If, what if he doesn't get that double ton? What if he got? What if he gets a pair in that in that in that second eleven warm up game? He conflates that failure with uh, with himself. Maybe he starts second guessing his his decision to go overseas and and, and make a go of it in, in in England. Maybe Warwickshire never never give him a chance in the first eleven. He comes back to South Africa, feels great in Cape Town again, gets a double ton for 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 Western Province, who, who give him another contract, and then he goes and plays for South Africa. Who knows? So. That's maybe one of the most important innings in, certainly in, in, the, in the fate of, you know, because maybe then they don't go, you know, don't go and win in that 2009 actions. Who, who knows? This is all, this is all a roundabout way of saying that there's no way to predict these things. We don't know when the next Joffre Arch is going to come along or, or South African born cricket and play for England. We don't know that we're not going to see a, I mean, we could probably say with certainty that we're not going to see a foreign born player play for India because of, of their glut of talent and, and, and deep resources. But, Maybe with the way the Future Tours program is going, we'll start seeing a, a greater amalgamation of, maybe we might see a West Indian play represent South African T20 cricket. Maybe we'll see a, a New Zealand-born player playing for South Africa because there'll be so many South Africans going the other, in the other direction. I, for one, think it's great. And we, we're, seeing, we're seeing players born from other countries play for smaller countries like America and the Netherlands and, and Ireland and, and, and in the European League. So, yeah. The world is interconnected. It's a global village. I think people like Nigel Farage need to go to the bin in the modern parlance. And we should all be mixing together and, and tear down boundaries and burn all the flags and let us just play crickets all together. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place? One thing I love about, I think Jonathan Trott's stories particularly, is that it's okay for him to love his country. And in his case, he grew up kind of with split allegiances, which, you know, mm. you, and, you and I will have children. Well, my children already don't know who to support. You know, they're bouncing around between Sri Lanka, Australia, and England almost every time they're watching a game, depending on who's winning. And, you know, <laughs> you, you'll come across that sort of stuff as well as, 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 you know, as your children grow. And that was another thing I didn't understand growing up in a monoculture of Australia, right? And as you come out, you see that. But what I sort of liked about the Jonathan Trott thing in this piece and, and knowing him as well is Jonathan Trott really loved South Africa and he had this incredible infin- affinity for England, but he, also, he just loves cricket. Right. And, mm. and I think that 
especially that sort of, I, I say the peak period, and I was as guilty of this as anyone else of making all the jokes about all the South Africans playing for England. But in that kind of peak period around 20, 2007 to 2010, maybe, um, we kind of forgot that these guys just wanted to play at the highest level they could. And it turned out for them to be able to do that was, was traveling. And I think that that comes across in your piece at times. The finance mm. stuff is obviously there, but just the ability to get the most out of yourself. If you're a professional athlete, you want to make as much money as possible, but you also want to test yourself at the very top level. And the majority of those, but we wouldn't, if Basil de Oliveira doesn't play for England, the political landscape is different, but Basil de Oliveira also ends up not knowing if he was that good, right? And so yeah. that ability, and as you said before, we've we've seen Australians go to to the West Indies. We saw Brendan Nash, who obviously has a Jamaican father, you know, uh, go to the West Indies and, and play over there. It is, we are starting to get to the point where people are moving around uh, so much so, and they can follow their passions and follow their skill. And because we have an international-led sport rather than a franchise-led sport, it meant that we thought about things in the wrong way, where some people just want to play as far as, and they want to push themselves as far as they can go. And, th and that's that's one thing that I really liked about your piece. Well, I appreciate that because I, when I when I started writing it, I, it was one of those pieces where I didn't really know where I was going. It was like, well, what what, what is the what is the point of it? Am I, am I just listing the achievements of guys who happen to be born in one country and started playing for another one? And, and you know, that's that's terrible. No one wants to read that. So I thought, okay, well. What what motivated them? What 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 wanted them to keep? What what kept them there? And I just thought, well, Dan, write it as if as if you yourself would, you know, tell tell your own story. Because now, I, you know, I'm a South African born journalist living and working in the UK. My son is English, like you say, like your kids will probably grow up supporting England, much to my chagrin. If I, if I can help it, uh, I will I will avoid that uh, <laughs> that travesty. So yeah, no, I I appreciate that, Jared. I, it was a it was a piece that um, I think uh, I think rounds off. A series on 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 this weird sort of meeting point between two cultures and identities with, within myself, and and it's it's manifested on on a global stage with with the cricketers, and yeah, I I, I hope that there are, I mean, there, I think something like three hundred thousand South Africans living in the UK, might be even more. I do quote the number in my piece, I I can't recall it, but there are a fair few. So I I hope that it that resonated with with people who now call home a place where they never used to call home. If that makes sense. Yeah, you should start up a Facebook group of all the salt peni of uh, <laughs> of Eagle. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Jared. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Sainapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by The Red Crickets.